Hi, and welcome to Adopted Fields with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. For transracial adoptees and people of colour, the past 18 months have felt like an emotional gauntlet. At least, they have for us. From the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which prompted a surge of the Black Lives Matter movement, to rising anti-Asian racism and the Atlanta shootings, to the disparate impacts of COVID-19 due to systemic racism and chronic underfunding in public health, there's been a lot to reckon with. To keep educating ourselves and in the hopes of continuing and deepening some of our earlier conversations on race and the fight for racial justice, we reached out to our friend, Korean-American adoptee, Rebecca Kinney. Rebecca is an associate professor in the School of Cultural and Critical Studies and American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University, Ohio. She's the author of numerous articles and the book Beautiful Wasteland, The Rise of Detroit as America's Post-Industrial Frontier, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2016. She's a Fulbright Scholar Korea for 2021-2022 and currently resides in Seoul. This is a thought-provoking, in-depth conversation that traverses the historical, personal, and political. First, she starts with a 20-minute primer on Asian-American racial formation and settler colonialism, kind of like an audio lecture. Then Rebecca tells us about finding her own ethnic identity as a Korean adoptee from the white working-class suburbs of Detroit before we discuss the barriers to interracial solidarity among Asian-Americans and POCs and how we might confront anti-black racism as Asian adoptees. Finally, Rebecca talks about living in Korea and her current Fulbright research before we end with an extended random question segment. We learned a lot from Rebecca, and we hope you do too. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Hannah. Great to see you both. So lovely to see you. Thank you so much for making the time and meeting with us today. And also thank you for um, supporting our podcast from, from like way back now. We wanted to kind of continue our discussions on um, race. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think you're um, the ideal person to do it with like as as an academic and and also a friend and also a fellow Korean. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so slot that one in there. I check all the boxes. All the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so you had offered to kind of start with a little bit of like a basic primer on Asian American history which um I, I think will be really useful for all of us. So so yes, please Please go ahead, do your professor bit. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, um, Hannah and Ryan, for having me. And I just really want to say I really enjoy your podcast so much. And so I'm thrilled to be here, especially to be on it. But um, I really every week or I don't know how often you drop, but whenever a new episode drops, it makes me really happy. And I have listened to every single episode. So I might go in the Wayback Machine and pull out some references. but yeah, I, I'm, I really enjoyed um, the guests you've brought on and just, um, so I just want to say thank you for all of your work um, in bringing this out to us. Um, I know that I'm definitely not the only one who really appreciates that time and labor. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The two biggest things that I want to make sure we walk away with at the end of today is um, that Asian America is not a term or an idea or even a political coalition until the 1960s. That's one. 
But um, also this, it's super important that everything that we talk about tonight is this idea that the United States is founded on settler colonialism and anti-Black racism. So anything that we read and understand about Asian American history is deeply tied to those two things. I'm just going to kind of start us off like how I start off my intro to Asian American studies class when I, I teach it. I always start in the 1960s in Berkeley, California, or in San Francisco, California, so the Bay Area. And students are like, why are we starting there? And so I start there because that's actually where Asian America as an idea comes into formation. Um, and it happens in the Bay Area right around the time of um, the coming together of the Black Panthers is happening in the same kind of geographic space. The Third World Liberation Front, um, which is made up of folks from the, uh, across the Asian diaspora, Latin America, is, are all coming into political activism and political engagement. Um, and they are moving together in the same spaces. Um, at that time in the United States, you have the um, kind of the peaking of the civil rights movement. So Historians date the long civil rights movement in America from, you know, the 1930s, actually 1940s, up through its kind of peak in the 1960s. You have the anti-war um, protests against the war in Vietnam. You have the rise of the women's movement, all happening kind of in that same social moment. And Asian Americans are part of that. Um, we are definitely part of that. But Asian American as a political identity is something that um, the scholar Yenle Espiritu coins as a pan-ethnic movement. So up until then, we really thought of, and we were really thought of in America, um, and each group thought of themselves as not Asian America broadly, pan-ethnically, but Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Sikh, um, Indian, et cetera. And so this rise in the 1960s is really a political formation. So this idea that if we come together as a unified body, even though there are differences in our histories, in our stories of migration to this country, um, in our stories of engagement prior to migration to this country, if we come together as a unified body, then we have um, political power. We have kind of a, a voice, there's strength in numbers. Um, and so Asian America really rises in the 1960s as a term, as an idea, and as a political ideology. And so if we start there, then thinking about this notion of Asian America as a really radical idea and a radical act, um, because what was also happening in that time is if you kind of look at the long history of Asians in the United States, it's not really a unified history. So um, what happens up until basically kind of the 1960s is that each ethnic group has its own history, reason and trajectory to being part of um, the U.S. cultural and so social fabric. So a lot of times an intro to Asian American history class usually starts in the 1860s um, with the first Chinese migrants who are coming to the United States. And usually that narrative begins with um, there was gold, right? So the gold rush in on the West Coast of the United States in the land that's now known as California was this big draw for folks across the globe, but um, really kind of seeing the Chinese as, a, as the first Asian group who comes as part of the gold rush narrative. And what you see then in 1960 or in the 1860s is Chinese come to Gold Mountain and they call it Gold Mountain um, for this promise of gold is the first implementation of um, taxes that are specifically levied against Asians. So there's this there's something called the foreign miners tax 
um, that is specifically levied against Chinese miners. So any gold that they would find in the I don't even know about panning for gold. Um, I guess in the mountain, right? so you have your little pan and then you pull out your gold nugget. Um, any gold they find would be subject to a different tax than um, say a white American or a black American at that time. At that time, um, what's happening there is there's actually very little gold to be found. Um, and so quickly, not just the Chinese, but, but everyone kind of moves on from this pursuit of gold. And um, the West becomes, you know, in the mythic narrative of America, the West becomes settled. But also thinking about what's happening at that time, the continued migration of Chinese is really, if you map it alongside um, the end of slavery in the United States. So 1865 is the official end of slavery. And then right at that point, you see this increase in um, immigration to the United States by Chinese. So they become one of the primary modes of labor to fulfill the the labor, I don't want to say shortage, but the labor shift that happens because of the end of um, slavery. So if we think about the project in the United States of the settlement of the U.S. as a settler project, and so as the United States, the mythic narrative is the U.S. settlement moves from the East Coast, so um, the 13 colonies on the East all the way to the West, right? Manifest destiny. And so part of that project is the claiming and staking of land, which immigrants like the Chinese, the Irish are integral to, um, both in terms of building the railroad, the transcontinental railroad, and then also in terms of um, providing labor and workers to really populate those areas. Um, and again, you know, this idea that the end of slavery really coincides with the rise of Chinese immigration. Um, and if we think of that through how labor and capital moves, you see that Chinese workers are brought in because they can be paid less. So really working minimal wages in that gap that's created by um, the end of slavery. If we think about the Chinese specifically, then you get this series of laws and restrictions that come soon after they come, right? So you get the foreign miners tax already in the 1860s. By 1875, uh, there's the Page Act, which actually bars all of Chinese women from migration. It's seen as kind of this, this quote unquote morality law because there's so many Chinese prostitutes, right? And so it's really, if we just bar Chinese women from coming, then they can't become prostitutes and corrupt, you know, the moral fabric of our Victorian society. So it's kind of seeing the ways in which um, the intersection of race and gender come into play there. Like Chinese men can still come because we definitely still need their labor. We definitely still need people to build the railroad, to go blow out those mines, you know, through the mountains, create tunnels. So a lot of the work that the Chinese crew were doing in the building of the Transcontinental Railroad was some of the most dangerous and difficult work that included explosives, that included, you know, like blowing holes through mountains to create tunnels, that type of thing. Um, but this notion of, you know, we're barring Chinese women because they're prostitutes was actually this idea that we, we that the United States didn't want um, Chinese to, to migrate permanently. So this notion that if only men could come, there would be bachelor societies and it would be a temporary sojourn instead of a permanent domicile. And so that happens. So 1875 is the first um, of the exclusion acts that are specifically targeted against a specific 
racial gender group. But by 1882, you have the full-on Chinese Exclusion Act, which bars all Chinese from immigration. So that's kind of one sort of slice of that story. And Chinese are legally barred as a class from migrating until 1952, till the McCarran-Waller Act. So that's like a full 75, 80 years. So that's kind of, if you think about kind of the, the early history of Chinese immigrants to America. Along that same time, if we think about, for example, Japanese immigration to the United States, it has a different, um, a little bit of a different trajectory than Chinese. So Japanese are not coming in the, in the 1860s and the 1870s in the ways that Chinese are. Japanese are coming a little bit later. Um, typically, the Japanese that are coming to the mainland are, in addition to laborers and farmers, are also scholars. Um, Chinese as well, some scholars, but because of the economic political situ situation in China, you have um, more laborers that are coming at that time. So the Japanese are have a different set of laws. So um, migration is allowed up through and into the early 1900s. And then you have in either 1907 or 1914, the Gentlemen's Agreement, wherein Japan and the U.S. come into this tacit agreement that Japan will no longer allow laborers to immigrate to the U.S., only quote-unquote gentlemen. Like, it's very, like, it's incredibly classed um, and gendered interpretation of immigration law. And so that, that stays on the books until 1924, when basically the United States stops immigration from almost everywhere. So the 1924 Immigration Act really ends immigration to the United States as we think about it um, through the narrative of like Ellis Island or the big kind of immigration movements from Europe, from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa, um, from most places in the world, it really comes to a standstill. But that's where we get the caveat then if we look at, for example, Filipino history in, in the United States. So the Philippines is... Um, after 1898, is a colony of the United States. So it's a protectorate. So it has the type of status that, for example, Puerto Rico does today. So it's not, um, it's not a state, it's not a colony, but it's under the diplomatic and political rule of the United States, I guess. So even as the United States, you know, always kind of makes this claim that it's not an empire, it's very much an empire, right? So at the end of the Spanish-American War, the Philippines becomes part of the U.S. empire. Puerto Rico becomes part of the U.S. empire. All of these places that were formerly part of the Spanish colonial empire are now part of the U.S. empire. So the Philippines doesn't become independent until well into the mid-20th century. I am going to stall, but I think 1934. So up until 1934, Filipinos can still immigrate to the United States. And I, I should fact check myself later, but I think it's the 1934 Tidings-McDuffie Act that ends that. But so even though, say, in 1924, um, Japanese can't come, Chinese can't come, Vietnamese can't come, Filipinos can still come because they are not counted as non-citizens because they technically are part of the United States body politic because they are part of the empire. So... They are still migrating. So, I mean, it's this way in which in order to tell the history of Asian America up until 1960s, it's very much 
a history of very specific ethnic groups. So that's um, that's part of it, right? So if we kind of think about so those three groups to just kind of help us think through it a little bit. And it's important because the ways in which different groups migrate and are allowed to migrate is really about things like um, what the scholar Yenle Espiritu calls differential inclusion. So this idea that people of color, immigrants of color, are often desired to be included, and primarily they are desired to be included as laboring bodies, but they're not their lives, their whole selves, their whole persons, that's not desired. So there's this idea that they are included, but there is a, a particular type of inclusion. So inclusion as laboring bodies, in, inclusion as um, care worker bodies, but not necessarily inclusion as full-fledged subjects of the United States. So, um, and if we think about then the relationship at those moments, those groups, for example, are not really engaging with each other, right? There's not conversations among like Chinese and Japanese or Filipinos and Chinese, for example. They're, they're all living and experiencing their own kind of trajectory and relationship to the United States, right? So if I'm a Filipino coming, like I might even be part of the World War I U.S. military, right? If I'm, if I'm a Filipino, if I'm a Filipino who is part of the U.S. empire now, I might be fighting in World War I on behalf of the United States. I might be immigrating to work in, um, in farms um, on the West Coast. So many Filipinos in the 20s and 30s when immigrants from all over the United all over the world, except for these are the places that didn't have a restriction, Canada, Mexico, and the Philippines, right, were three main places where people continue to immigrate to the mainland U.S. from. So you have kind of this different history and trajectory, um, depending on ethnic group. So if we go back to the 1790 Naturalization Act, the Naturalization Act of 1790 is the act wherein if you're a free white man, you can apply to become a U.S. citizen, right? So like all of the dudes who were signing the, the United States Declaration of Independence, so George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all those folks, right? They're not born in the United States. Maybe Thomas, I don't think Thomas Jefferson was. So they all have to be naturalized citizens. So all of our quote unquote founding fathers um, are all naturalized citizens. They were not born in the US. They were born in the British colonies. Yeah, right. Because they're writing the Declaration of Independence. Um, and so they're born in the British colonies, but they have to become naturalized. So that law, the 1790 Naturalization Act, is on the books for hundreds, like for over 100 years before anybody challenges it. And then um, it's actually challenged in 1922 for the first time by a Japanese American um, named Takawa Ozawa. And so Ozawa was born in Japan, but had lived in the U.S. for over 20 years. And because he was um, deemed an alien and ineligible for citizenship. So one of the laws that happens in the late um, 1800s is this creation of the Asiatic Bard Zone. So before the 1924 Immigration Act, basically everybody who is from the Asiatic Bard, Bard, B-A-R-R-E-D zone, so all of Asia, oh. are barred from immigrating and they are barred from naturalizing, from becoming a naturalized citizenship. 
And so um, in the 1920s, Takawa Ozawa brings this case up through um, regional court all the way up to the Supreme Court that challenges the 1790 Naturalization Act. And so he files for citizenship based on this idea that under these acts, free white persons and persons of African descent are allowed to be um, to be naturalized, right? So the, the people who are imagined to be part of America, right? White and Black Americans. And so he didn't challenge and say that this law was un- unconstitutional. It didn't, you know, include everyone. He, he was challenging then this idea of who could be classified under free white persons. And so he was making this case that Japanese immigrants should be classified as, as free white people and therefore eligible to naturalize. Um, because at that time, if you were born in Europe, you could apply for naturalization. And so part of his case was, you know, I'm, I'm as American as, you know, as any American, like I dress like I am American, I went to an American university, I run an American business. And the Supreme Court said, um, said no, you know, like you're not a white man, right? So Azawa is, um, is denied that petition. And so all to say that, that Ozawa and then um, another man, um, an Indian Sikh man, um, the next year, his, his case is heard in court. He again tries to fight that same naturalization act. And again, says that like he, as an Indian is part of the Aryan, right? He is part of the Aryan region. So therefore he also is a white man. And the United States says, no, like you're definitely not a white man, right? But these two men, right around the same time in the 1920s, they both are what we would call today part of Asian America. And they are advocating for their right to legal status, legal citizenship in the United States by making an argument for their proximity to whiteness. And so this is really important too, Mm. as we wrap back around later in the conversation to this idea of um, the relationship between Asian America and anti-Blackness, like two of the most important kind of Supreme Court cases that tried to put a hole in this free white people kind of provision for naturalization are, are Asians, right? Well, people that we would say are of the Asian diaspora in today's language, but in making an argument or a case for their whiteness. So this idea that Asians in the United States have long made arguments for proximity to whiteness, not because necessarily they wanted to be white, but because of the legal, social, cultural, and political power that whiteness has held and continues to hold in the United States. And so thinking through that as an important, a really important moment. Oh, that's super interesting. I had, I have never heard of those two cases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't get talked about that much, but, um, it's that thing that I think Asian Americans, like part of our hard work to do is to also contend with the way that anti-Black racism is part of our process of becoming American. Um, that is something that I feel has not really been amplified all that often in the conversations about, you know, the rise of BIPOC or, you know, how... Um, how we enact solidarity. I think that that's, that's been particular work that I've been really trying to call out 
um, myself and my Asian American community to do is to do that really hard work around acknowledging anti-Black racism in our community. And then after that acknowledgement, being able to kind of, where, where do we go from here, right? How do we build from that? But until we acknowledge its presence, um, acknowledge the deep insidiousness of it, um, and kind of look back at historically why it's there even. I think that that's, you know, one of the big challenges for our community. I'm just curious, like as a Korean transracial adoptee, like raised in a white family and I'm assuming like a predominantly white community, how did you, um, how did you develop your identity, I guess, as as a person of color and as an Asian American and then kind of become more politicized? Like, was that through your research or I'm just kind of curious about that path. Thanks for that question. So I grew up in just outside of Detroit, um, one of the most segregated metro areas in the United States, um, black right along black white segregation. So um I grew up at 13 Mile. So if you ever saw the, the Eminem movie, um, Eight Mile, like five miles north of that northern border, the place I grew up was a working class white suburb. So I, um, my, my family is white, working poor. Um, my parents were both the first in their families to go to high school. And in fact, in their generation, like the only people in their families to graduate from high school you know, my mom's parents, both the grandparents on that side, both came from the South um, to work in the auto industry um, during and just after World War II. Um, both, you know, had like a junior high school education, Max. And so the suburb I grew up in um, was intentionally settled, was one of the suburbs that white working class people moved to in the era of white flight. So as Detroit became more and more Black, as more Black folks moved from the South to the North, um, this was a suburb that kind of in terms of housing size, visual aesthetics, education of the people in the suburb were very similar to the neighborhoods that they were leaving in Detroit um, or the city. But the, the key difference was that these were all white neighborhoods. Right? So this is the kind of the history of the, the suburb that I grew up in. Um, and so um, obviously, since I think we said at the top that I'm a Korean adoptee, um, obviously I'm not white, right? Um, but I grew up in this very white working class suburb. But the interesting thing about this suburb was because who was moving there at that time were mostly ethnic whites. So I grew up in a suburb that was very white, but it was like not white, like waspy middle-class white. It was very white, like Polish, Italian, um, Albanian, Czechoslovakian, right? Like very Eastern European white. Um, so it's really interesting. So I knew like I grew up in a really white place, but like we, like the white kids I grew up with weren't like the kids on TV, right? They, they weren't like, it wasn't a middle-class white suburb. It was like a working class white ethnic suburb which somehow made it a little different, right? Because nobody in my little community looked like any of those families we saw on TV. So it wasn't like I was watching TV and it was like all these, you know, like family ties. Like that definitely wasn't our family, right? Because like they were rich and they were bougie and they were, you know, 
college educated and all of these things, all of these things that like my, my community, my town wasn't. So I felt like both different in my community, but I also felt like my community was different than media depictions. Like even as a child, I could tell that like, oh, like that's not how my neighborhood looks or like, that's not how like the people I hang out with, like, that's not what their grandparents look like or whatever. So um, I think that like, definitely coming kind of into an identity that like the place I grew up was different than what I saw on TV necessarily. And then also that my family was different from the other families in my community were like two important sort of identity formations. Um, And then knowing that, you know, anytime we would drive like five miles, sorry, I'm trying to learn my kilometers. It's like 10 kilometers. I don't know. I don't even watch me trying to kilometers, whatever, like 10 kilometers south. It was like, like an all black neighborhood. Right. Like, and so again, and fundamentally for me to this day, like I'm very aware of who is, who's present in a room. And I don't know if it's because I grew up in a really hyper segregated metro area. I don't know if it's because I grew up as like one of the only Asian Americans in a primarily white space. And we would sometimes move into primarily black space. Like, I don't, I don't know, like, um, like my great aunt and uncle, like they went to this like really white Baptist church that was still like in the city of Detroit. So sometimes we would go there on Sundays. And so it's this way in which even in a super segregated place, uh, my family still had ties in Detroit. So we would travel into Detroit often, but it was always just racially very different. And then the rhetorics around kind of what that space was was different. And I could never understand why, because visually these places look the same. Like it was the same type of housing. It was the same type of stores. It was the same type of like built environment, but the narratives that we told about that were told to me, like about Detroit were very different than about where we lived, which was, you know, somehow safe or better or whatever. But I was like, but I don't, I don't see how it's different except for like white people live here and black people live there. When I was young, I used to think about this a lot. Um, and I think that that's has, has led me into kind of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in. And for me, as a person that was neither white nor black, I always was like, but where do I, re- where do I fit in? You know, um, and that, that has always been a question of mine. But then I ended up going to a university. When I was there, like I signed up for this first year seminar that was called I Too Sing America. Um, I didn't know at the time, but I was soon to find out that it's the, that's also the title of a very famous Langston Hughes poem. And so the seminar was run by a psych professor and a sociology professor and a media professor. And it was a first year seminar. There was like 18 of us. And we were basically like brought together based on our like racial, ethnic, sexual class, like all religious, like every sort of diversity imaginable. And we kind of brought into this class. And so for me, that was my first introduction to language to help me understand power and kind of difference and to understand like all of these things that I somehow just observed and thought about a lot as a child. I was, I was a very bookish child who liked to read a lot, who liked to observe a lot. I also partied a lot when I was in high school, but um, so I was like a very contradictory sort of young person. But when I started this class, it just like kind of gave me the language. And of course, like I ate it up, right? Like it it gave me kind of, oh, here are the answers in these books. And that really kind of started me into my major. I ultimately became 
um, an ethnic studies major with a focus on Asian American studies. Um, but even then, you know, even then, by the time I graduated from university, even within my, you know, my subspecialty of Asian American studies, I was, I thought, and I felt like, this is all great, but like, where am I, right? Like I too am part of Asian America, but where's my story, right? Like I'm not represented here. So the history of Asian America is frequently taught as a coastal history, really focuses a lot on California, really focuses a lot on New York. And up until probably the last 20 years, this hasn't really thought very much at all about the Midwest, um, despite the fact that, you know, the Midwest is the location of um, a huge Hmong American community. Um, it is the center of Adoptee America. It is the center of so many, so many communities of Asian America, but it has been kind of long on the periphery. So that's a really um, windy way to your question. But for me, that class, um, shout out to, to that class. Um, it, was, it was like, I remember that year, like is when I really stepped into my identity as a person of color, as like a working class person. Um, it took me longer to step into my identity as an Asian American. It took me longer to step into my identity as a Korean American. And, you know, like I'm still stepping into my identity as like a Korean American and as an adopted person, like I'm, that's still work that I'm very much doing. I'm sorry, what is that difference for you, mm -hmm. like between stepping into your, your identity as a person of color and then stepping into your identity as an Asian American and, yeah. and then later a Korean American? Yeah. I, I'm just like, what is that? So I appreciate that question because I actually, I mean, it's something that I was very, like I very much like thought about. Um, and I like, you know, like me being my, like my very like, okay, am I a person of color? And then like immediately I could be like, yes, like my experiences, I'm like racially othered from the moment I walk into a space. Like my lived experience bears out like the history of structural racism and the present day reality of like interpersonal racism. Yes. And then, but then it becomes complicated because I did grow up in a white family. So I think that that's something that, I mean, we can also wrap back around to in, in terms of like the relationship of adoptees to whiteness, I think is something important to tease out. Um, so it was easy for me to like step into an identity as a person of color because I could talk about that. Like I understood what that experience is or was at the time when I came into that identity. And I could even like, in universities, when I became comfortable, like calling myself an Asian American, um, because for a while I was like, oh, but am I Asian enough? Like, do I know enough about Asian American? And I was like, but look at my face. Like, I'm a freak, like, <laughs> like my, I live in the body of an Asian, of an Asian person. And so ergo, I am an Asian American, right? Like I experience life as an Asian American, but my Korean American identity was like much harder, right? Cause I was like, what does it mean to be Korean? Like, to me, that gets to the difference between race and ethnicity. And so in the United States, I am racialized every day as Asian, right? Like that is like, I, like nobody's going to ask me like before they say something very racist or ask me if I speak English. They're not going to say, wait, hey, are you Korean and do you speak English? No, they're going to say like, oh, do you speak English? Or like Ching Chong, go back to where you came from, right? Like those are, those are like pan-ethnic, pan-Asian American experiences. Um, but for me... The Korean American identity was partly I had to feel comfortable. And then it was partly when I became seen as a Korean American and like two like really important 
I think things happened where I was recognized as a Korean American that helped me come into my identity. So the first was in um, in 2001. I uh, I graduated from university that year, and I applied for um, the Princeton Review, which is a U.S. based prep company. So they ran like all the SAT preparation um, courses, and the SAT is the test you need to take to get into university in the U.S. And so when I was like about to graduate or my last semester at college, there was on the like the Asian American students listserv, there was this like call for job applications um, and the Princeton Review Korea was hiring. And basically this job ad was like, are you a Korean of the diaspora? I'm sure they didn't use the word diaspora, but like, are you Korean? And did you go to like a top 20 university? If so, like apply like free airfare, like free housing. 30 bucks an hour, USD, apply here. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm Korean. Like, I want, I want to go live in Seoul. So I applied. So I ended up applying and I got the job. And well, I was like both excited and also like, oh my God, like now they're going to expect a Korean American and it's me. And so <laughs> I was also having feelings about that. But when I arrived, it was the most interesting thing I've ever and I, I wish like I still was in touch with the hiring manager, Jesse Pick. Like if you're out there, if you're somehow listening to this, I'm in Seoul again, find me. Um, but he was um, he was Korean and he but he had gone to he spent a lot of time being educated in the US. And he was the hiring manager of the Princeton Review. And his whole thing, which had never been done before, was basically like all of these Yuhak saying are coming back to Korea from being, you know in high school in the US and they're all going to study for their SAT all summer. So what better way than for our like our new office in Gangnam, this is in 2001, than to hire all of these kyopos that are had just graduated from like Columbia and Harvard and Yale and Michigan like all of these universities that the parents all know the names of. Like what better way? And then to be like they're American but they're also Korean. So he really like hired all sorts of like every sort of stereotypical, like part of Korean America. So there were like preachers kids. There was like the, you know, the LA laborers kids. There was me, there was like a Hapa person. Like I it was kind of insane, but I was like, when I saw who was hired, I was like, this is kind of amazing. Cause like, we're all Korean American, but we're all very different parts of what that means. Like from all over the country, different class backgrounds, different religions. It was it was amazing. Um, so big heart to him. Um, I didn't actually, we didn't actually end up spending that much time talking about it that summer because we work like 50 hours a week. And then we spent the rest of the time because we were 22, like drinking, going to, <laughs> you know, doing that. And then my first job right after that was I went back to the US and um, I was hired by the Korean Center of San Francisco and um, to run a youth program. So like in, in the same year, I was like, oh, these other people who are actually Koreans, like see my application, see my name, see me as also actually a Korean or a Korean American. And so that was like hugely kind of coming into that identity. That um, Princeton Review experience sounds amazing. Like, like what a what a wonderful kind of experience to have um, like at the beginning of your like adulthood to, yeah. yeah. 
to see all these different um, examples of Korean Americanness together. Yeah. It was amazing. It was like the first time, because all during university, like there were tons of Koreans and Korean Americans at my university. And when I went to university, like I became friends with all sorts of people of color, all sorts of Asian Americans, except for, I was like, I can't be friends with the Koreans because like, I'm not Korean enough. So like, I, you know, like I had no friends at university that were Korean or Korean American. And then I was like, okay, I guess now I'm Korean enough because I got this great job in Seoul. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it was the first time I, I was friends with Korean Americans. And it was, it was really, yeah, it was really amazing. One of the questions that we had, um, and this is jumping back a few steps, has to yeah. do with that work that you were talking about of building solidarity, um, not only with, say, like the Black Lives Matter movement, but also within the various groups that constitute Asian Americans. I was really interested in light of all these different migratory trajectories and all these different legal mechanisms that you talked about before, which created these like different speeds and time zones for these different groups that now fall under Asian American, broadly speaking, what did that kind of mean when in the 1960s you started to have this coming together that you opened the interview with in terms of like which, you know, which activist groups, like the Chinese activist groups or Japan, Japanese or Filipino, like what was the kind of constellation at that point that were then coming together to kind of forge this pan-ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. And then, oh God, this is so long-winded, but I'm thinking maybe if on the back of that, you might talk about some of the contemporary barriers with regard to that solidarity. Yeah. So great question. So in the 1960s, it, it, moving back to that, is the, so the first kind of pan-ethnic coalition that comes together is really in relationship to the civil rights movement and to protests, um, anti-war protests in Vietnam. And so we see a lot of activism. Um, the history is rooted really in California, not to say that there weren't other groups doing work elsewhere, but in terms of um, the history that is most often documented um, and what most well-documented, I guess you would say. Um, so you, you see a lot of coming together of the groups that are most populous at the time, which are Chinese, Japanese, and Filipinos. So in the 1960s, you still don't have much Southeast Asian immigration because Southeast Asian immigration to the United States comes during and after Vietnam. So the late 1960s into the 1970s, um, Korean immigration, you know, it's really interesting because the Koreans that immigrate to the U.S. during Jap Japanese colonial rule, um, they don't get counted separately. They get counted as Japanese nationals. So it's unclear what happens to them demographically. And then post-1965, you get more and more Koreans. So in 1965, there's a new Immigration Act that reopens Asian immigration. So it's this interesting moment in the early 1960s where it's primarily you have second, you have third, you have fourth generation, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans. And so the 1960s generation, particularly for Japanese Americans, for example, this is the generation whose parents and grandparents were incarcerated um, in concentration camps. So you have a lot of kind of activism rising out of that generation um, that, you know, frequently in the kind of in the oral histories and in the narratives of those activists, 
a lot of them talk about silences in their family. Like their families don't talk about the period of incarceration. They don't talk about that moment. And so they just are raised in this, this environment where they can feel like the silence around something is palpable, but they don't actually know what it is. And then they begin to learn about that, right? As they come into their own adulthood and their identity formation. So these are some of the activists coming together. But if we look at kind of the coalition of Chinese and Japanese coming together in the 60s, that himself is like crazy for their parents or their parents' generation, right? Because if you think about like the, the like Japan and China were in a huge war that only ended at 19, in 1945 when World War II ended. Because in, if we think about like US, global history, right? Japan had tried to colonize like everybody in Asia. And so like, there's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment among many groups because of the, the way the Japanese empire worked um, and did its occupations throughout Asia. So the kind of the coming together of those groups happens in relationship to the civil rights movement, in relationship to this understanding of, um, of racial solidarity with Black folks and understanding that like that's not necessarily um, anti-Black racism and anti-Asian racism aren't the same, but understanding that there is anti-Asian racism and how do we come together and support, um, support the, Black, the Black power movement, the Black Panthers. Um, and then also in terms of the anti-war protests. So then how then do we contend with U.S. empire and imperialism in Asia, right? Is, are, are some of the big kind of coalitional moments that are bringing groups of Asian Americans together um, in, the, in the 60s. And then that generation builds a formation and foundation. Um, you see a little bit of quieting kind of in the 70s as, um, as immigration from Asia more broadly increases. And then in 1982, um, if we move back to Detroit, you have the, um, the murder of Vincent Chin, um, a Chinese American engineer that uh, is out um, the week before he's about to get married. And he's at a strip club with his friends. And um, two white men who work in the U.S. or in the Detroit auto industry are sitting across from them at a bar. An altercation begins. Um, one of them utters, you know, it's because motherfuckers like you that were out of work to Vincent Chin. And then this fight ensues. This fight ensues that like um, starts at a bar, gets broken up. Um, Vincent and one of his friends goes to McDonald's down the street. These two men, a stepfather and a stepson, pursue Vincent and their friend and his friend, um, and ultimately hunt him down and beat him so badly with a baseball bat that he's um, in a coma for a few days, and then um, and then he dies. And so <clears throat> his beating death really galvanizes um, the Asian American movement when. The, the sentence for that is probation and a $3,000 fine for the, two, um, for the two killers. Even as there's like two policemen on the scene, um, even as there's like hosts of witnesses. Um, so this case gains momentum and becomes famous because it's actually the first case tried in U.S. case law under the anti-hate crimes legislation. So hate crimes legislation is on the books and really gets put on the books um, as a way to combat um, anti-Black racism. But the first, like one of the first case law to actually try it, take it for a spin or whatever, um, I guess it's a better, 
a bad sort of metaphor for this context, but to take it out is um, the Vincent Chin case. And so um, um, ultimately, you know, like the case is not, um, the killers walk free, they are not convicted under um, anti-hate crime um, legislation, but um, the case becomes famous across the United States as the lawyers and the coalition, the Justice for, for, for Vincent Chin movement goes around the country to raise money and raise awareness of this incident. And so then you see kind of like in, in the early 80s and this second reformulation of Asian American activism. And then on the heels of that, um, you get the Japanese um, incarceration redress movement. So this, um, this petition for redress, both monetary, but really what the movement is looking for is an apology from the US government um, for incarcerating Japanese Americans during the war. And so you kind of get this, this slow moving momentum after, after that. So it's building and building as Asian America is growing. But this question of like, what are some of the barriers to galvanizing the movement? It's both a barrier and a strength, right? So Asian America is growing um, post-1965 because of the, the 1965 Immigration Act, so the Family Reunification Act, where um, effectively ending the 1924 Anti-Immigration Act. So um, Asians and other immigrants are, are allowed to come to the United States again. You see um, the Refugee Resettlement Act um, during and after the Vietnam War. So as Asian America continues to grow, there are all of these folks that are coming to the U.S. Um, and being kind of incorporated into the body, body politic of Asian America, some of whom are, are being incorporated and are educating themselves and who are coming to the movement. And then some of whom are just being incorporated because they are being read as the first time as Asian. And they're like, what is this Asian thing? Like I am, you know, Korean or I am Laotian or I am Cambodian. Like what is Asian? Right. And so that's part of the work that, that has to be done, right. Is this idea of what is Asian America? And so if Asian America is constantly growing because new people are coming to it, the coalitional politics of it is complex to say the least. And so oftentimes it's more successful on a regional level because then regional issues can bring groups together and groups that like, oh, I don't know about that, but I do know that like what is happening to, you know, our restaurants or to our neighborhood or like, why are we all having to live in this, you know, housing or why is there no translation services available at the county court, right? So those types of kind of local regional coalitional politics really help to support that. Um, and then the national kind of Asian America more broadly is a little harder, right? Because it's hard for most of us to, to kind of think about like, well, that's happening to people, you know, 3000 miles away, or what do I have um, what's my affinity with them? So um, the Justice for Vincent Chin movement is um, one of the first movements that is able to successfully kind of take what is um, in effect like a very regional local incident and galvanize like a national um, movement around it. Can I ask, and forgive me, this is a silly question, but um, you know what you were just going through in the 1960s with the sort of origins of or that like, you know, emergence of Asian American as a political identity and mm -hmm. as something that was 
really forged through acts of racial solidarity. By the time of the 80s with Vincent Chin, was that, and I'm wondering maybe taking it to the more contemporary moment, is that link with like the Black Power movement or Black activism, did that link become more diluted by the 80s? I mean, I, I think that that's, that's an important question. And I think it's, um, it gets diluted all of the time, right? Um, kind of continually, because I think that, I mean, I guess I am an immigrant, um, if we think about it that way. Um, but I think that one of the, like, as an immigrant to the United States, like, like, it's very, you learn very, very early on, like if we think back to Takao Ozawa of 1922, if we think back to um, Bagat Din in 1923, that like in America, to be close to whiteness is to be close to legal and social privilege, right? That, like, that is the legal and social privilege of America. And to be close to blackness is, is not, right? The ways in which, um, you know, 1965, if we think about the opening up of the Immigration Act, what's also happening in 1965 is um, it's the height of the civil rights movement. Um, it's the, the rise of the Black Power movement. Um, one of your other questions on there is also like the, form, the formulation of the model minority myth emerges right around that time too. So it's, it's the ways in which not only is there kind of this very complicated pan-ethnic work that needs to happen in Asian America um, to form a coalition of Asian Americanness, But there's also this way in which Asians are being um, what Claire Jean Kim calls racially triangulated, right? With whiteness, with blackness, and with Asianness. Um, and other scholars have argued, like Latinos experience the same thing, right? Like in, in a paradigm society like the United States where race is and identity is really thought of in terms of black and white, these other groups like Latinos, like Asians, they, they form a triangle, right? Neither white nor black. And so the rise of the model minority myth that really emerges in the 1960s, um, and it's happening at the same time, like when I teach my Intro to Asian American Studies class, like I show a cover from Time or Newsweek that has like, you know, like one of the weekly news magazines that has like an image of the Watts riot that's happening. So the LA rebellion of 1965, eight, 1965, eight um, of, the, of the 1960s, the LA rebellion that's happening there alongside uh, a cover that says like America's new whiz kids. And it's like four young Asian Americans wearing like Stanford sweatshirts and like Harvard sweatshirts. And the whole article and kind of the media framing is like, Look at these kids. Their parents were incarcerated in, in, I'm sure the news media then called them in war internment camps, and they still are successful. Like, look at them trying as hard to be these model Americans. And the subtext then is like, look at these model minorities in opposition to these other minorities who are like burning up cities and who are, you know, inciting civil unrest. And so it becomes this like, this binary, right? Like this idea of like, here's two minorities and this one is going to Harvard and this one is like burning down the neighborhood, right? And so it's it's this way in which these stories, these whiz kids stories really seem to populate the news at the same time that this um, the black civil rights movement is really gaining um, steam, which is like a divisive, much like BLM is today, is a really divisive, a divisive movement. I mean, the way in which the United States 
talks about the civil rights movement now, it's like, oh, I mean, I don't even know why there was a civil rights movement because everybody seems so pro civil rights movement, right? The way in which like everyone in America is so embraceive of Martin Luther King, for example. But in like the 1960s, that definitely was not the case. And so I'm sure, you know, it's like in another 60 years, people will be like, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter was so important. But like, that's not what's happening today, right? So the way in which the civil rights uh, movement is remembered as this like, really important healing to the to America's racial trauma by all sorts of Americans today, um, even those who are deeply invest, invested in structural racism, white supremacy, there's still like this post civil rights movement embrace. But at the time, like it was incredibly divisive. And so for those people who, you know, you can imagine like the newscasters were like, I can't believe those people are doing it. There are also the same sorts of journalists and newscasters who will be running these stories about these Asian American whiz kids who, you know, are so good and obedient and are so hardworking. So it was really this commentary on looking at these young people of about the same age, um, both racial minorities in the United States, but the ways in which one was performing in particular ways that the other wasn't. And they don't even, and they didn't even speak English, right? So things like that, right, were really... Um, emerging at that time too. So it was like, not only were, were people, you know, coming to the U.S. and learning or maybe not, right? Like not understanding. And I think that that's something that still is a common refrain is that, you know, like not, most people don't know the history of white supremacy in the United States, like most Americans. Yeah, that's, that's learning that has to happen. Thank you. Um, one other question <laughs> before we move to section two, and I'm sorry, but I'm like really interested to hear about um, what you have to say on this one, um, is the difficult question perhaps of what Asian American adoptees responsibilities are. So adoptees mm-hmm. specifically in light of, you know, all the challenges that, that Asian American and, you know, transracial adoptees face what you think the responsibilities are when it comes to combating anti-Black racism? Oh, that's a big question. Um, Wow. These are great questions, you all. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And maybe um, you could also uh, go back to, you said like you've uh, been kind of doing that kind of personal work for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just tell us about, I don't Mm -hmm. know, what that that looks like. Yeah. So, I think that for, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't, and I don't want to tell like adoptees what they should or should not be doing. Um, but I will speak for, for myself and as, as myself as an adoptee, like, I think it goes back to the story I was telling you about growing up. Right. So the fact that most of us, um, I don't have the demographics on this, but most of us grew up in families that were white um, because of the, the way that the Korean adoption program worked, like, if you were adopted during this, you know, the wave, the big peak wave, like you had to be adopted by, you know, a hetero couple that were married, that were probably Christian, um, that had particular sort of like family normative sort of roles, right? It, that And that were primarily white, right? Like, I don't think that there was any sort of like racial box on the form. Like I did see home study forms where they talk about all this other stuff. I don't know if they necessarily talked about race, but I think that in terms of, of that, right, the idealized family was also a white family. 
particularly for the countries in which we were mostly adopted to. And so for me and for the Korean adoptees um, that I know, the Korean American adoptees that I know, like we have, we are adopted into white families. So therefore we are proximate to whiteness, right? So um, in terms of family generational wealth, if there is any, that is in relationship to um, the way in which whiteness has been conveyed in the United States as a form of property. And, you know, I always like when I teach an intro to, to ethnic studies class, like we really sit with this idea that for, you know, the first couple hundred years of the United States, whiteness was the line by which you were, um, it was determined whether you could own property or you were property, right? Like it was a very important demarcation. Um, and so proximity to that has been um, hugely important in the United States in terms of wealth accumulation. So even if I go back to my family, my white family, as I mentioned, was like working poor, right? So we didn't have, we didn't have generational wealth. But if we look at my family, um, when the United States in the 1950s and 60s is spending all of this money to build up its suburbs, right? So it is funding it through infrastructure, through things like the building of highways, through things like laying sewerage pipes, sewerage, sewerage pipes, I don't know how to say that word, laying sewers, um, building schools, um, creating like infrastructure for electricity, all of that stuff is being paid for by federal and state governments, right? And then to do that, to create suburban living spaces or communities that are for white people only, right, is a huge subsidy for whiteness. So my family, who is working white poor, can leave an inner city area, not because they're working any harder. They were working hard, but they weren't working any harder than their black neighbors. But because they were white, they were able to move into this community that had new schools, new houses, new sewer lines, all sorts of like new things, right? That they were able to access because they were white. And so that has a generational impact, right? So it's their studies, Melvin and Oliver and Shapiro do the study called um, white wealth, black wealth, right? And this idea that just kind of the ways in which things like education, that if, even if you have the same amount of wealth, white to black, your education will be better because of the ways in which segregation happens in the United States the ways in which schooling and segregation go hand in hand. So even though my family like grew up, I grew up in a family without any wealth per se, that access to whiteness ensured that even though like most of the kids in my school didn't come from families whose parents went to college, we had a pretty like decently solid public school education because we were in a white neighborhood. And so I think things like that cannot be denied. Was that the first part of your question, Ryan? Yeah, my, my question was um, what you think some of the responsibilities might be of, mm. of adoptees. Yeah. I mean, I do think that like adoptees, and I would say this for many Asian Americans in general, I think that, I think it's been super great. Um, I don't, I don't, I have feelings about BIPOC, like I don't, I don't love that word, but I think that as I know a lot of friends of mine as Asian Americans, not just adoptees have kind of come into a political identity in the last few years in ways that they haven't, which I think that is amazing. Um, I think that it's, it's a time, it's definitely time for that. And um, I'm here for that. And they're, they're doing that work. And I think a lot of that work is um, educating yourself. Um, I think that a lot of that work is 
learning the history of both Asian American history. You know, as I was looking at your questions for this interview, I was like, damn, I know nothing about like Asian history and like everybody was at war and like, how did Japanese colonization happen? And like, I mean, like, I, like I'm like, oh, I need to do that work. And in this interview, I'm like, oh, I really need to do more work on settler colonialism. Like this idea that like, there are things that we should know, right? And like, sure, they, they haven't been taught to us. And that is like a systemic fail. But now it's like, now I know that I don't know them. So then if I don't educate myself, that's my fail, right? I still think it's hard though, like, I don't know, on an individual personal level to know, like, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but like what, like what the real uh, equity work is then, you know, like. Um, I feel that way too, I, Hannah. It's <laughs> um, and I guess that's part of, maybe part of the work is that constant learning what the work is. But I don't know, you asked a really good question. Maybe Rebecca can answer like, maybe what are some of the, some of the ways that that work manifests or what that kind of maybe looks like? I mean, I think that actually, like, had a, like that question is the word, right? Like being, I think that um, it's like that being vulnerable to like what you don't know and being humble and saying like what you don't know. Um, because I think that, I think that that's it, right? Like the, um, this idea that like the most devastating thing to be called in the 21st century, you know, and like this moment would be like a racist, right? Like this idea of like, um, I mean, I didn't read it, but I think that like, that's what the whole like white, white fragility concept is about, right? Like the, this idea that like, I to become be called a racist is like the most, you know, not the most, but like the most devastating, like I just, okay, I said not, and then I just said it twice, but this idea, but this, this idea that, um, that to do the work is hard and like, you're not going to be right. And you're going to like, fuck it up. And I mean, not you, like all of us. Right. And I think that that's part of it is that like, for me to grow up as a Korean adoptee in a white racist family who has benefited from systemic racism, who purposefully moved to the suburbs to move into a better, nicer place. It was really the things that were better and nicer about it was that there were no black people. Right. I mean, I think that like to name it and say it out loud is like part of it. Right. Is to say mm -hmm. that like, well, but my family was nice. And, you know, like that was like, you know, two generations ago. And like, that's just the way it was. Right. That's that is the way it was. And the way it was was racist. Right. And I think that part of it is like kind of naming it, not to shame it, but like to name it. Right. Because I think that there's so much secrecy and shame and in the hiding it then it just becomes that thing that we just still can't talk about. So for me, that's part of it is to like to show it, right? And to like outline like how I have benefited from white supremacy, right? Even as I'm, even not as a white person. But that's the whole thing is that like people benefit from white supremacy. People are invested in the practice of whiteness, not just white people, right? And then I think for me, it's like, I fuck up, right? Like I fuck up and sometimes I'm just like, wow, racism is so hard to unlearn, right? Racism is so hard to like, to dismantle both systematically and structurally and then also in terms of like personally and implicit bias right and people will say like yeah but you have black friends and i'm like yeah but that doesn't mean that like somehow having black friends will like absolve me of being a racist right or like having been steeped in racism from the time i could speak 
not because my family was so racist, but because the culture I grew up with is inherently anti-Black, is inherently white supremacist. Um, and so I think that that's, that's the work there is just is naming it. And I think part of it is like everyone wants to be seen as like they're doing the right work and they're doing it well, but like sometimes you need to be vulnerable. And I think that that's like one of the joys I have in teaching is that like, you know, I teach ethnic studies. I teach like intro to racial formation. And I, and I, in the beginning, my students are like so terrified to say anything because like they're mostly afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so like part of it is like having community agreements of like, you will say the wrong thing, right? Like you will fuck up, like you will. And like, it will be okay, right? Because then we will learn from that moment and we will, you know, process it together. But then also then caring for the people in the community when that wrong thing comes out, like how that lands, right? And how that will impact different members of a community or of a classroom differently. And then how that also like needs to be addressed, right? And so that's, it's part of that careful work mm. that is hard and is tiring. And I think, you know, sometimes because I do that work for my job, that means that sometimes I'm not so good about doing that work in my personal life, you know? And I mean, like, that's real too. So. I think that's really um, important. Like that, that part of what needs to be done is also dealing with the repercussions of saying the wrong thing and how people aren't just flushed out, you know, or, or discarded. Even maybe when, you know, we all, we all fuck up like that there if people are genuinely wanting to take people with them and if it's like a really we kind of movement that's that you know that's trying to be built that that there also needs to be ways in which people are yeah like you said like people move on you know people are forgiven people are you know given the, the opportunity to to unlearn and then learn and unlearn again and whatever and um and that they still have people that are all dedicated to that kind of more collective future. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, like, I think the way I said it, it was like, oh, like this is, I, and I want to be clear that like, it's like, it's one thing for me to be able to facilitate or do that in, or model it in a classroom or like that is my job. But I just had a conversation recently with somebody else about like, I mean, how I've been unable to do that, like with my family, because I'm like, I just, I don't have the emotional ability to do that. In 2016, when my dad was like a Trump supporter, I was just like, I don't have the energy for this. Like, I like, I do this all day and I help like young people like navigate and learn, but I'm like, you, like, I don't have the energy to do that. Like, I cannot bring you along. So, and so, and I think that that's also real too. Like, where are the boundaries um, about like, what is safe for you, right? And then where can, where can you help people on their journey? And that will help your journey. And then where are you like, in order for me to continue on my journey, I cannot be in this formation of conversation or of engagement. That's real too. So it's like um, thinking about where is your energy best, um, best used. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I think that you too, like in your podcast, like do that all the time, like you are doing that work by, you know, like the questions you're asking, by the guests you're bringing on, by the issues you're raising, you know? And so it's like, you're doing it, Hannah, like, even though you said you're not sure how, how to do it or how to, it's like, you're doing it in those acts. So, yeah. 
So this might be a really good segue to another question we have, which is what has it been like for you living in Seoul during not only the COVID pandemic and heightened anti-Asian racism, but also Biden's election? You know, I actually spent um, election night of this past year with Hannah um, oh. in like you had the, the dance, the dance movement space, which was precisely what we needed. <laughs> it was like Hannah and like five Americans. <laughs> Yes. For dancing in the dark. And we were oh, all like oh. so anxious. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's been like super weird to be living abroad in these last crazy couple of years. Um, because both the sense of watching the US from afar, so having that distance, but also being it's like watching that like something in slow motion, like, oh my God, like I can't believe this is happening. But then also being able to kind of well, now it's level four here in Korea, but during the height of the really terrible times in the U.S., also being able to be out and about and not locked down. Um, it's been so weird. I think it's been the sense of, okay, this is going to make me sound a little bit maybe crazy, slightly crazy, but um, I've always had this ability to imagine myself in multiple places. So I've been having this sense of like, oh, there's this me that's like living this life and soul, but maybe there's this like me that's also just living her same timeline trajectory in the United States. So part of this time I was like, what is that, that, that version of me doing? Like, oh, who is she locked in with? Like, where is she locked in? <laughs> um, so I've been kind of thinking about that, but I think to answer your question, like to be kind of watching the politics from afar has been strange. So to me, like to not be actively participating in it in ways that I normally would um, has has been different. But I do think that at different moments, like I've tried to um, do that work by like spreading awareness of like things happening. So like after Atlanta, like pretty quickly putting together like some resources for folks um, after George Floyd, like pretty, you know, um, pretty quickly putting together some resources and staying connected in those ways has been good. I'm not on social media. So in some ways, I think that that's really good for me um, because then it means that like when I come into these things that are hard, that are heavy, yeah, that it's like I'm doing so intentionally, right? So like I'm I'm choosing to open news. I'm choosing to like look at these things. And yes, I definitely go down the internet rabbit holes like all of us. But I do think that social media, um, for me, when I was on social media, it, it became like just constant, right? As opposed to now it's like, I'm going to think through. And I think back to like when I was in grad school. So my PhD is in ethnic studies. And I remember with my cohort, sometimes we would just like cry together because like we were reading like thousands of pages a week about like racism and genocide and like just like really heavy, hard things, right? That are both historic and, and ongoing. And it was just so heavy. And I feel like this last year or two of the world, like the global pulse has just been so heavy that in some ways... Like there's moments when I felt a little bit like survivor's guilt. Like I'm like in this little bit of a bubble in Seoul and like things were never like COVID was happening, but like, I was like, I didn't know anybody that had COVID. Like I didn't know anybody in Korea that had COVID, but like I knew, you know, people in the U.S. that had COVID. Like I knew people who died. Like it just felt very both personally safe. And then also like 
I don't, I think I, it was like one night, maybe it was kind of like that very big night when like we were out, maybe it was Brian for your welcome drinks. And like, that was kind of like the height-ish of, of COVID. And I was like, I just went out with like 20 people. It's like a very tiny bar and like <laughs> singing in a small room. <laughs> and so like, there were moments like that. And then I would like talk to my friends and family in the US and like, they, they were like, I can't find toilet paper. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like... I definitely was not out with like 20 people <laughs> dancing and drinking and singing. Um, so that was, that was hard. And then I think in terms of like the political things um, that really, I feel like my, my, not my most important work, but like the work that I feel that has been hardest to show up for is my work as a teacher um, from a distance. Right. So everything that's been happening um, during COVID, that's been really hard. So like my university has never had a really strong Asian American Students Union. And this last year, like um, they kind of started gaining speed and momentum. And after Atlanta, they had a vigil and they, you know, invited me to be part of it and to speak at it. But it was like, I totally like zoomed in and um I just had a big screen of me like in the middle of like the campus and I was like okay this is so weird and part of me was like oh like I really should be there like this is when it's important for me to be an embodied presence right to be you know their teacher their mentor their like their support like in person and like that actually that night I felt so terrible that I like I wasn't there I mean I was there but like on a screen yeah yeah, so it's been it's been kind of a love sometimes lovely. Sometimes I feel guilty for being here. But yeah. Perhaps I could also ask what the impact has been for your identity living in Korea, say as an adoptee, as as an American, as a Korean American. Yeah. I know that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um so it's interesting. Like so as I mentioned earlier, maybe it got cut, so I don't know. But um I, so I lived here when I was 21 um, and the joke is, and then I moved back here when I was 39. So like for a while, I was like, maybe I just come to Korea like once a generation, like baby, 21, 39. And so when I came here, I came originally for a sabbatical and I thought I was going to be here for 10 months. And I totally thought that that was going to be enough time um, because I came here before and I lived here for four months and I was planning on staying longer, but my sister was getting married. So I flew back to the United States um, on September 8th, 2001. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to be in the U.S. for a month and I'm going to go back to Korea. And then September 11th happened and I never went back. And so I didn't go back to Korea between 2001 and 2019, like so for 18 years, like you know, at a certain point, I was like, oh, like, I, I lived in Korea. It was great. Like, I did that. I didn't meet, like, I didn't reach out to the adoptee community at all um, when I was here in 2001. And I think it's because I was so steeped into, like, being part of this, like, Korean-American community that I, I was just really, like, not thinking about that at all. Except for one time I got lost on a bus. And when I got off the bus, like, I read the sign and it was like, oh, I was on the bus to Pyeongtaek and I was like, oh my gosh, like that's where I was born. I'm like, I could keep going or I could cross the street and then turn on the bus and like go back towards Seoul. And I was like, okay, I'm crossing the street. So that's like the only kind of confronting I had with that part of my history and my life. 
And so then when I came back when I was 39, so in 2019, I came back with an intention to really connect with the adoptee community, um, to start a birth family search. Um, it was like with an intention of studying Korean. Like it was, it was me kind of ready um, for the first time in my life to be able to not even confront my adoptee identity, but even to like speak it, right? Um, and that was like a huge shift um, for me. And so I came back, like kind of not knowing how I was going to do that work, but definitely ready to do that work. And for me, I was like, I just need to immerse myself. And so I did that. And then pretty soon after I arrived, I realized like, oh my gosh, 10 months is not going to be enough. Like, how am I ever going to leave? It's impossible. And then a global pandemic happened and my work moved online. So I got to stay another year. And then I got a, um, a research scholarship. So I got this, I'm staying another year. So, yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about your research fellowship? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I am, um, I've been awarded a Fulbright uh, Scholar Research Fellowship. And the project I proposed for the fellowship is called um, Adult Korean Adoptees Living Long-Term in South Korea. Um, so I'm really interested in meeting with folks and interviewing folks, getting their stories about their experiences of home um, and homemaking and home building, particularly in Korea. Um, the questions will perhaps go back to kind of their um, times outside of Korea or before Korea. But although I'm intentionally recruiting adoptees, um, the, the main focus of, of the project is not necessarily their adoption story or questions of, you know, birth family surge or those types of things. They may come up in the course of the interview, but I'm really interested in terms of is there a particular ways in which um, adoptees who have decided to return to Korea make home, right? And what does home mean? Um, and I'm really curious and wonder if kind of how we understand home is in relationship to like other members of diaspora who leave home, who return from home, um, or perhaps it's completely different. Um, I'm really interested to, to know like how folks um, articulate their sense of home, where home is, whether that's like on the very intimate scale, like four walls and mapo, or if it's on that more of like, you know, that larger kind of cultural um, human scale. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I, I've started. So if anybody's listening to this um, and you've lived in Korea for 12 months or longer um, and you'd love to be part of my research, call me. No, um, feel free to message me. But um, I hope to talk to at least 50 folks over the course of the next 10 months. Um, wow. Yeah. So I'm really, uh, you know, hoping to do a lot of um, meeting with folks both in Seoul and then hopefully if I can get some funding outside of Seoul. Um, and then also for folks who maybe have lived here long-term um, and then maybe decided to leave, I, I, I would also love to hear those stories as well. So, yeah, I'm really excited. I think that, um, you know, in the last 10 years or so, there's been some really great scholarship um, by adoptees on adoption. Um, and it's a field that I'm actually just kind of moving into as I mentioned before, like I had the longest time even like naming my identity as an adoptee. Like it was, um, I have a good friend from grad, not a good friend, but like a friend from grad school 
who, um, who even in grad school was doing critical adoption studies. And I would never talk to him about his work except for like at parties and I would get drunk. And then I would inevitably start crying when I was trying to talk to him. And, um, but he's very kind. And then like at the Asian American studies conferences, like he would always invite me to the critical adoption studies caucus. And sometimes I would go and I would have that whole, like, do I fit in here? Because all of you were researching adoption, but I'm just the person sitting in the corner crying. Um, so I, I kind of was like always like adjacent to this group of scholars um, and really kind of, it, I couldn't even read their work for a while. Um, it was just too hard. And then at a certain moment, I finally just started reading their work. Like, I think I, I started reading like Kim Park Nelson's work and then Lena, and Lena Kim's work, who's not in an opsy, but Kim McNee and my friend Kit Myers, who was this grad school friend. Um, and it really just really spoke to me. And, you know, what I've definitely seen in um, particularly Lena Kim's, Kim's monograph and Kim Park Nelson's monograph is that they both spend... Um, some really beautiful time interviewing the um, the adult Korean adoptee community, like in the early to mid two thousands, and so there's this like these really beautiful kind of ethnographic portraits of the community at that point in time. But there hasn't really been much kind of long term study um, of our community since then. So in particular, as these questions as we kind of move into like our thirties and forties. I'm wondering if home is different than, you know, than those that that earlier portrait where most of the folks were in their 20s, maybe coming into their 30s. Um, what it means like, as dare I say, we move into like our early middle ages, <laughs> um, you know, like those types of things. So um, I'm really interested in um, kind of expanding the literature in those ways. I wonder um, if we could like finish like the, the official part of our interview, which has been like a mammoth interview. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was wondering when you were recently um, in the US um, uh-huh. on, on vacation, you sent me a message about one of your dreams. Oh, yes. And I was wondering if you would, you could share it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was, um, I was recently in the US for a couple months um, doing all sorts of things and, it was so, it's so weird to be back because it was super open in America. So it was, now it's like, but anyway, so one night I had this dream and Hannah was in it. So in my dream, I was, I was somewhere with a group of adoptees and then somehow we were going to my mom's house and my mom has passed, but so it's always like a treat when she comes to me in my dreams. And I remember Hannah was there and some other friends who I don't know who they were in real life, but in my dream, they were my friends. But I remember very specifically, like introducing Hannah to my mom. And at that moment, like feeling both a little bit ashamed because like my mom has, you know, like, as I mentioned, like I I grew up very modestly and like working poor. So like I grew up in a small house with like um, a small place, but then also being thrilled to introduce Hannah to my mom. And I messaged Hannah and I said, like, you were in my dream. And I realized that I've dreamt of Hannah before. And I really think that in my dream, she represents like me coming into my adoptee identity. And so both, I mean, Hannah, you're like this lovely person and this wonderful friend that I'm so happy to have met and to have intersected with. But like when I introduced you to my mom in my dream, it was just like this moment of like, oh my gosh, like I'm introducing my mom to 
Hannah. But then when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, I was introducing her to like my adoptee identity. And so I messaged, I was like, you were my dream, but this is what I think it means. Um, yeah. And so I think it's been um, this really like special time to be here um, in this moment, in this, you know, because like, forever right as long as we're on we're on this earth like people will be like oh where were you during that COVID thing and i'll be like oh my gosh you'll never believe i mean maybe i'll still be living in seoul <laughs> it, but. thank you for sharing that i think i, I just think that's just a, a beautiful dream and i'm i'm so happy to like i feel like in in the spirit world or something i did meet your mom and i just i i'm sure she would be like delighted by um, how your life has unfolded in Seoul um, and this, yeah, additional identity that you've stepped into so beautifully. So, oh. <laughs> all right. Um, should we do this random question segment? Do we have time? Okay. It's, it's like four yeah, questions. Like snappy. Okay. 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 Yeah. Number one, um, do you have a favorite guilty pleasure? Actually knowing you, I feel like you probably have multiple. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, give me a category. Like, it's too many. Like, <laughs> like, there's alcohol, there's food, there's like games I play on my phone. Like, um, games on your phone? Yes. I'm obsessed with like a couple different games on my phone. Like, all of them are kind of Tetrisy, kind of Candy Crush ish. But um, yeah, like, I'm like really obsessed with this one called currently like 2048 we have to make make all the blocks like go together and then add up to this sounds so nerdy add up to this number um 2048 <laughs> i i did not know that i thought you would be like just way too productive to be playing games no on your phone. so like that's like, i like so when the iphone is like spent, like sometimes it's like 10 hours a week i spend like playing games on my phone it's terrible. So I try and like, I try and rationalize it by saying, but I'm also listening to a podcast at the same time. So it's not just yeah. time spent on games on my phone. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, oh, and then my other like huge one that I watch. So I don't have, well, I don't have my VPN hooked up to my TV here. So I watched season, not just season 16, but also season 17 of Grey's Anatomy when I was in America, like all of the the TV possibilities, and that's what I opted to watch was to catch up on Netflix because in Seoul you can only watch up through season fifteen. And was there actually like anything worth watching in season sixteen? Yeah, I mean, sixteen and seventeen. The thing is, it's like I'm the only like I don't know how that show is still on television because I'm the only person that still watches it, and I've been in Korea for the last two years, so I don't know. Like it's it's weird, and I just can't stop because it's just the same. I mean, Meredith Grey is like the only person still on it from season, but I started it season one. It was my first year of grad school. And so I felt a lot of affinity with like the interns mm. as they were starting their first year of residency. And now I don't know. But yeah, that is like for sure a guilty pleasure. Like, <laughs> All right, number two, if you weren't a professor, what other career or profession do you think you'd be in? I mean, so I have two retirement fantasies, which is like, maybe that's means it, but like one of them is like, so, so adjacent. Um, like I would own a bookstore and it would have like a very sweet bookstore cat um, and a cafe that also serves, that also serves wine oh, nice. and, and a great event space. So that would be one. And then um, 
I think like I really like coaching. Like it's this weird thing. Like I would like to be like like a career coach. Um, oh, I, thought I don't you know how like you get into coaching. Coach. No. <laughs> I was like, no, oh, but what, like, what <laughs> okay. I can totally uh, see you as a career coach or even like yeah. some kind of just general life coach. Yeah. I would love to do that. Like, I don't know what, like how you do that, but I, it's weird that like when I mentor my students, my favorite part is actually like not necessarily like helping them with their dissertations, which I do like, but I'm like, let's map out your career. Like, what are your goals? Like, let's, yeah. So I'm really, I really like mm. that. So I think that that would be a fun other career for me. I think you just just start. I, I don't think, I think life coaches just kind of like declare themselves. Yeah, but like, what do you have to put on your resume to be like, I'm qualified to be a life coach? That's the thing. I don't know if they. Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, I mean, if you were going to hire a life coach, wouldn't you want them to have like, like a, a pretty impressive set of credentials? I, I, I guess just like, on it, like loving their own life, you know, that's probably mm-hmm. like. The most important one. Anyway. Hmm. That would look great on a CV, just that line. <laughs> I love my life. <laughs> They're like, you are definitely not an academic then. <laughs> if there's any life coaches listening, send me a message. Also get in touch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get in touch. Even though I'm not on social media. <laughs> I totally didn't know that about you, but I can I can like completely see it. Anyway. This is not like a weird, like a weird sort of like it's totally not fun and exciting, but Do you have like, okay, so this was a random question segment and like for listeners, we totally, Rebecca did not know these questions, but you came so prepared for that second one. Do you actually- I mean, I think like a lot. (laughs) Have you thought about it to the extent of having a name for your bookstore? You know, I think about it all the time, but I don't have like one that I love. Like there's been a few that like, but I'm like, that's not it. But I do think about it. Like I think about what it will look like. I think about like how I'll set up the books. Um, I'm thinking about like, do I want the cafe bar in the back or to the side? Like I've actually like, I've visualized it like quite intensively. Wow. Do you believe in like <laughs> manifesting stuff? I like, do. Like, do you think? Mm. I manifested two extra years in Korea. So, I mean. Well, I, really I feel like this is like a whole other conversation, but I feel like you're also... I guess, like, I had the privilege of being, um, seeing some of the, like, effort that went into you, the, manifesting those extra years as well. Like, <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think that's a whole other, like, separate amazing skill of just kind of um, really going after what you want in life. Yeah. So, I, I think there's, yeah, the visualization part and then also just the, the determination. Anyway, yeah, separate conversation. Uh, yeah. Number three, we know you love to read. What's been your favorite book so far this year? God, that's so hard. You know, I actually just read Jane Jung Trenka's The Language of Blood for the first time, and I loved it. Like, I couldn't put it down. Um, and it's embarrassing to say that I just read that for the first time. Um, I'm currently reading Zakia Harris's The Other Black Girl. And I like, but I was, I was mentioning this at dinner the other night. Like, it's definitely a first novel. Like, there's just things in it that, like, just feels a little too overwritten or a little too, um, but it's been enjoyable. And I think the, the this is from the end of last year, but um, I borrowed it from Hannah. 
um, ocean vongs um, on Earth were briefly, mm. we are briefly gorgeous, really um, just moved me. And I read, I read it twice, so maybe that counts mm. yeah. as one. Yeah. So those would be the three on display in your bookstore? Uh, no, story. I mean, no. I, so the Harris book I like, but I don't, I don't, yeah. Stop moving me. Actually, re- I reread a couple books last year that I hadn't read in a long time. Um, I reread Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior as well. And that reading that uh, next to Ocean Vong's um, was really, I'm like, oh, like he's really like throwing back to Kingston quite, um, quite often. And the ways in which hers is a memoir and his is fiction, yet hit, like, I like the genre. I think that they're actually beautiful to read in companion. Um, and I reread um, Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower. So mm-hmm. recently as well, which I think it was a great book for this time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those four are still, are still top of the mind. Okay. Last question. Um, I can't resist asking about star signs. So I know that you're a Scorpio, which I feel like is one of the less understood signs of the Zodiac. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What's one of the best things about being a Scorpio? I think it's our, like our instinct. It's like our, yeah, like we are decisive and just like, I think our loyalty and our decisiveness, but like, don't cut us because like, then you're dead to us. You got that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't mess with us. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. I'm not sure. There's, I think there's many wonderful things about being a Scorpio. And actually, like, when I was able to, like, finally learn that I was actually really a Scorpio, it thrilled me to no end. Because, like, for a long time, I was like, I mean, I could be, like, who knows? Like a Sagittarius or a Capricorn or anything. But yeah, it was verified. Well, thank you so much for for this evening. You are like obviously one of the most like eloquent and articulate people that we've had on the podcast and knowledgeable. But also you're like one of the fastest with these like rapid fire questions at the end. Like I swear, everyone else I've had to like edit because they're like, Oh, like, you know, really ruminate. You just have, like, answers, like, straight away. That's like my Scorpio, like. <laughs> That's your. <laughs> my tail. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have to say again, like, thank you both for having me. To learn more about Rebecca's work, visit bgsu.academia.edu forward slash Rebecca J. Kinney or get in touch at rkinney at bgsu.edu. That's R-K-I-N-N-E-Y. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. <laughs>